Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, retired professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for downloading, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or if you'd like to write us a review on iTunes, as several people already have, that would greatly help us out as well. First, A quick word about the current WWE product in the year 2016. Last week's episode of Raw featured a bloody main event beatdown, a backstage attack where a wrestler was thrown through a windshield, the company's owner saying the word fuck on live television, and of course the return of Shane McMahon, who will end up becoming a fixture on this fine podcast. Dare I say... Is the lead-up to WrestleMania 32 going to take us back into the Attitude Era for a little while? I'm hoping it might, but time will soon tell. Alright, so tonight we're recapping the January 12th, 1998 episode of Raw from State College, Pennsylvania, the home of Penn State University. Tonight's episode is doubly special. Not only is this the go-home episode of Raw before this Sunday's Royal Rumble pay-per-view, but it's also the five-year anniversary of the very first episode of Monday Night Raw. Clearly, we can expect big things tonight, right? We open with Shawn Michaels' Triple H in China in a limousine heading to the arena. Last week, we went off the air with The Undertaker dragging Shawn into a casket. So, of course, HBK will explain to us what happened after that, right? Mmm, no, it's actually not mentioned at all in the entire broadcast, so let's just assume they had a cuddle session and drifted to sleep in each other's arms. Sean and Hunter tell us that the best thing about college is, of course, college chicks. They talk trash about The Undertaker, Owen Hart, and Bret Hart for some reason, and then Sean pulls his pants down and moons someone through the aptly named moonroof window of the limo. Clearly, we're off to a great start. Cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Amazingly, a large group of fans has gotten together and created individual signs which spell out Michinoku rules. I'm guessing that is both the first and last time that has ever happened, and amazingly, they spelled his name correctly. Another quality sign, bring back nails. Considering the fact he choked Vince McMahon and alleged that Vince tried to sexually assault him, I wouldn't hold out hope, but we can both dream. Also, a sign which just says white power, which I hope is tongue-in-cheek. We kick off with a four-corner tag match, WWF Tag Team Champions, the New Age Outlaws, versus the Headbangers, versus the Truth Commission, versus the Godwins. Essentially, this match has the New Age Outlaws going head-to-head with every remaining tag team that's stuck in the New Generation era. I'm pretty sure this match is not for the title since none of the announcers have said it is, but your guess is as good as mine. This was actually an okay opener which resulted in the Outlaws picking up the win when Billy Gunn took an object out of his tights and clocked Phineas Godwin with it, thus picking up the three count. Of course, the cameraman didn't actually show us the part where Billy pulled the object out of his tights, so it looked like the Outlaws picked up the win thanks to a single punch. Kevin Dunn, keep your eye on the ball. We then get a video package recapping the career of the Legion of Doom. We flash back to one month ago where they were pummeled by DX and the New Age Outlaws, including Billy Gunn shaving off Hawk's mohawk and Animal being put through an announce table. They have not been on WWF television since then, but they will be at the Royal Rumble this Sunday to face the New Age Outlaws in a match for the WWF Tag Team titles. Why the month-long layoff? Because you can't rush growing back a mohawk. These things take time. Backstage, we see Stone Cold Steve Austin arriving in his pickup truck with the cameraman accidentally blocking his path into the arena. Austin then beeps at him and tells him to get the hell out of the way. 
Not a great night for cameramen so far. After a quick commercial break, we see Austin is picked up where he left off last week by attacking the Godwins near Craft Services. Come on, man. They just had a match and wanted to get a drink. Show some compassion. Jeez. Austin then parks his truck by the side of the ramp and walks to the ring for an interview with Michael Cole. I believe this is the first instance of Austin driving a vehicle into the arena, so we're witnessing history here tonight. Spoiler alert, there will be quite a few more times when he does this. Austin says he will win the Royal Rumble, but Cole says his random attacks on other superstars are making him a marked man. Austin asks if Cole has a pen, so Cole hands him a sharpie and Austin draws a literal target on his own chest. He says he isn't hard to find and encourages anyone to come after him, and that's the end of the segment. A vintage Austin promo, and of course there's nothing wrong with that. However, this segment mostly reminded me that Michael Cole has been in the WWE for a long fucking time, despite not being very good as an interviewer or commentator, so kudos to him. Backstage, we see DX's limo arriving to the arena. Apparently, back in 1998, the rules about actually being on time for a live television broadcast were quite relaxed. For further evidence of this, see any episode of WCW Nitro involving the NWO. We then see that a large WWF production truck is blocking the limo from being able to enter the arena, so Sean and China go to investigate, leaving the injured Triple H alone in the limousine. But we have no time for that, because it's time for a match. The undefeated Kurgan with the Jackal versus Jimmy Cicero and Lance Diamond in a handicapable match. I realize that Kurgan is supposed to be intimidating because he's seven feet tall and makes angry faces, but the fact that he only has little tufts of hair around his stomach and nipples just makes him look kind of goofy. Either shave the whole thing or let it all grow. Shoes aside. We're told that Kurgan has to pin both men, not just one of them. He quickly beats the first jobber by putting him to the canvas with the head claw for a count of three, and then they prematurely play his music by mistake. He then just hits a suplex on the other jobber and puts the already pinned guy on top of him, and he proceeds to pin them both simultaneously. Kurgan, it appears, was the original Ryback. After the match, Kurgan impressively grabs a Penn State football helmet, which was sitting on the announce table, and tears it apart with his bare hands. The jack-off then slaps him in the face to control him and leads him away from the ring. Kurgan is this year's big, unstoppable guy who can't possibly be eliminated from the Royal Rumble, so we'll see how that goes. We then cut backstage where Sean and China are preoccupied talking to a production guy, which allows Owen Hart to run on top of the limo, dive through the moonroof, and attack the injured Triple H, who is still inside. Sean and China jump into the limo, and it starts driving away for some reason as we go to commercial. Nice job by that limo driver. A brawl in the back seat isn't dangerous enough. We need a brawl in the back seat of a moving vehicle as well. Next up, Mark Merrow taking on Vader. Before the match, Merrow tries to cut a promo, but his microphone isn't working. He keeps talking, unaware that no one can actually hear him. Eventually, Sable's music hits, and out comes the artist formerly known as Goldust, dressed as Sable, unfortunately wearing a thong and black lingerie. Merrow takes the advantage early on in the match thanks to interference from Goldust, but then Sable heads to the ring, which sadly gets a huge pop from the crowd. She immediately heads over to Goldust and weakly kicks him in the ribs, causing Merrow to grab her by the arm and walk her up the ramp. Vader then regains control by clotheslining Merrow and whipping him to the steel stairs as a pubescent fan awkwardly yells, You're a queer! Sigh. Vader then hits Mero with a Vader bomb, but before he can get the win, Goldust runs into the ring, removes a coconut from his bra, and smacks Vader in the head with it to draw the disqualification. Goldust and Mero then leave the ring together as several fans loudly yell the F-bomb at them. Not fuck, but rather the one which rhymes with Bob Saget. Was homophobia this brazen at every WWF event in the Attitude Era, or is this only because they're on a college campus tonight? Stay tuned to find out in the coming weeks, I suppose. Also, if it seems like a lot of matches are ending in disqualifications on Raw lately, you would be correct in that assessment. Going back the past three weeks, six of the past 15 matches have ended in a disqualification, and almost every single match has involved outside interference of some sort. At this point, seeing a clean wrestling match where one guy wins fairly and the other guy loses is almost as rare as seeing the Sumatran Rhino in the wild. The Sumatran Rhino is of course endangered because it tends to yell out gore before it attacks its prey, giving them ample warning to move. 
We go backstage where we see the limo returning to the arena. Sean, Hunter, and China are seen emerging from it, but no Owen Hart. I would make a joke about them presumably having killed him, but, uh, well, you know. Michael Cole then tells us that Mike Tyson may be in attendance this Sunday at the Royal Rumble, so we then flash back to the last time a celebrity attended a Rumble. Back in 1995, former New York Giants linebacker Lawrence Taylor had a front row seat where he was pushed to the ground by Bam Bam Bigelow, resulting in a match between the two of them, which somehow main evented WrestleMania 11. For some reason, Bam Bam pushing LT was this week's 1-800-COLLECT slam of the week, despite the fact that it was not a slam and it happened three years prior. We now go backstage again where Vader is lying face down on the ground with a trash can on his head, having been taken out by Steve Austin. I realize that beating up all these wrestlers backstage makes Austin look like a badass, but the fact that he did it to Vader just makes me feel sad for the big guy. It's hard to think of someone who has ever been more underutilized in the company. Well, maybe either him or the soon-to-be-retired Wade Barrett. I mean, Vader was in the WWF for almost three years and never won a single belt, not even a run with the tag titles. He certainly pissed off the wrong person, and in this case, that person's name happens to rhyme with Blonde Blykels. Next up, Nation of Domination members The Rock and D'Lo Brown, accompanied by Kama Mustafa versus Ken Shamrock and Mark Henry. Henry wears a shirt to the ring which says Rocky sucks, so The Rock grabs a mic and tells him he's going to rip that shirt right off him after the match is over. An important piece of history occurred in this match. We got the very first instance of the People's Elbow, which Michael Cole simply referred to as the big elbow across the sternum. It didn't get a three count or even that much of a reaction from the crowd, but I guess The Rock felt like he was onto something. Toward the end of the match, Shamrock actually hit Rock with a Hurricane Rana, then knocked down D'Lo and Kama. I will point out the fact that very few wrestlers have had a chance to stand out over the past few weeks because the matches have been so short, but Shamrock has been a guy who has looked really great every time out so far. I hope he keeps it up because I remember his WWF run being pretty uneventful for the most part. But anyway, back to the match. So strangely, Shamrock's partner Mark Henry wandered into the ring right as Shamrock was about to put the ankle lock on the Rock, and, in a shocking swerve, Henry attacked Shamrock instead. Rock, Henry, Kama, and D'Lo then started putting the boots to Shamrock, which of course resulted in, stop me if you've heard this before, a disqualification. Rock hit Shamrock with a really nice looking rock bottom, with Henry making a bogus three count. Sure enough, The Rock then did rip off Mark Henry's shirt, and there was a Nation of Domination shirt underneath. They all put their fists in the air and walk back up the ramp, where they run into a confused Farouk, who apparently had no idea that Henry was joining the group. For those scoring at home, here is your current Nation of Domination roster. The Rock, Farouk, Mark Henry, D'Lo Brown, and 2016 WWE Hall of Fame inductee Kama Mustafa. To say that all five of these guys end up getting over in the Attitude Era would certainly be an understatement, but you'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. Uh, spoiler alert, one of them has sex with a 77-year-old woman. Next up, DX heads to the ring, with Hunter now only having one crutch instead of two. He says that Owen was the nugget of the Hart family, but tonight they finally flushed him into the sewer. What that means, I have no idea, but hooray for Pooh. Sean then takes the mic and says he will hit Mike Tyson with sweet chin music if he tries to get in his business at the Royal Rumble, and Triple H then amusingly imitates Tyson's voice. Sean was then going to tell us something about Kane, but instead... Owen showed up on the Titantron with blood on his face, saying he would make their lives a living hell. He then comes to the ring holding Hunter's other crutch, but referees get between him and DX before they can brawl. It's a good thing that they broke up that fight, because right now Triple H only has one good leg, so he's very vulnerable to Owen doing something like this to him. And that's why you're sitting there with a bad leg, and that's why I kicked your leg out of your leg. Up next, Disciples of Apocalypse members Skull and 8-Ball versus Jim Cornette's mystery team. Before the match, Cornette arrives at the top of the ramp to tell us that the NWA has a rich tradition of tag team wrestling in addition to singles competition, and he introduces us to Robert Gibson and Ricky Morton, the original Rock and Roll Express, with their theme song being the entrance music used by Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty when they wrestled as the Rockers in the WWF. The Express began teaming together in 1980, 
1983, so at this point, they've been doing this gimmick off and on for about 14 years. At this juncture, Morton was 41 years old and Gibson was 39, so once again, it seems that Cornette's definition of tradition just equates to pretty fucking old and outdated. Both men are wearing tights with tassels and bandanas because their gimmick is that they're a couple of 1980s metalheads, and when they take their shirts off, they look like two creepy uncles getting ready for a pool party to which they likely were not invited. Even sadder is the fact that Ricky Morton is still sporting an absolutely ridiculous bleach blonde mullet as though he was still stuck in the mid-80s and could never give up the look that made him famous. See also Michael P.S. Hayes. We're told that the newly crowned NWA North American heavyweight champion Jeff Jarrett will not be on Raw tonight due to an illness in his family. Also, apparently, the Rock and Old Express are actually the NWA tag team champions, even though they have no belts with them, but this will be a non-title match. After a couple minutes of some meh action, Cornette sneaks into the ring behind the ref's back and clobbers Skull with his tennis racket. However, when he puts Morton on top of Skull to pin him, the ref turns around and sees it, resulting in... Jesus fucking Christ, the third straight disqualification on this show, which now means that eight of the past 17 matches on Raw have ended via DQ. Vince Russo, you creative genius. After the match, 8-Ball punches Cornette, but Morton sneaks up on him and clobbers 8-Ball with the racket as well. Morton and Gibson then give a double drop kick to Skull as Cornette continues to waffle 8-Ball with the racket, but this brings out Chains, who chases them off. Personally, I see no reason why metalheads and bikers need to feud with each other when they can both just bond over their shared love of crystal meth, but that's just me. I like to unite people. We now get a footage from earlier today where Cactus Jack is walking through Penn State University's football field in the humorously named Beaver Stadium. He says many wars have been fought here, and he himself has fought quite a few against a man named Terry Funk. We even get footage from some of the Japanese death matches, which include explosions, ladders, and barbed wire. Cactus says that a strange thing happened after these bloody wars. He found himself becoming very close with Funk. He then openly states he has no idea why Funk is calling himself Chainsaw Charlie, me neither, and he thinks it's pretty ridiculous, but to each his own. He then says that they will both brutalize the New Age Outlaws, but the Outlaws shouldn't view it as punishment, they should view it as a chance to get to know each other. That's actually kind of sweet if you think about it, but uh, but don't think about it. Next up, Mankind versus the artist formerly known as Goldust with Luna Vachon. Goldust is going to have to go a long way to make me forgive him for dressing in blackface last week, but okay, tonight's a good start because he's dressed as... Dude love. For those scoring at home, that means we have now gotten all three of Mick Foley's personalities in one form or another in the past two segments. The match literally lasts about 15 seconds before Steve Austin runs into the ring and hits both men with stunners, so I guess that's either a no contest or a disqualification win for Mankind since Austin stunned him first. Either way, holy fucking shit, the booking for this show is terrible, and I am now officially regretting my decision to review the Attitude Era. Austin then grabs Jim Ross's headset and says there will be no more Mr. Nice Guy until after the Royal Rumble, and he's going to win the whole thing on Sunday. Now, I should point out that Austin has wrestled in a match only twice since August because he was injured at SummerSlam 97 when Owen Hart botched a tombstone pile driver on him, giving him a legitimate broken neck and temporary paralysis. He healed enough that he was able to return to the ring and defeat Owen to regain the Intercontinental title in a four-minute match at Survivor Series. Then he defeated The Rock in a five-minute match at the in-your-house pay-per-view called Degeneration X to retain the title one month later. However, when Vince McMahon ordered him to defend the title against The Rock again the next night on Raw, Austin threw the belt into the Oyster River in New Hampshire, thereby forfeiting the title over to Rocky. So to recap, Austin has given up many stunners over the past few weeks, but he has literally nine minutes worth of wrestling time over the past six months. Will this ring rust potentially hamper him when he competes in the Royal Rumble this Sunday? We shall see. 
After a commercial break, Jim Ross now interviews Vince McMahon, who is shown backstage. Amusingly, Vince pauses when he hears the crowd boo him as though he was surprised. I assume he will eventually get more comfortable with that sort of reaction. Vince tells us that Mike Tyson will be at the Royal Rumble this Sunday as an invited guest, and they hope to finalize the contract negotiations at that time. He then tells us that Tyson will be on Raw next Monday night, where they hope to have a huge announcement, and for a brief moment, I got excited because I knew that I would have at least one segment to look forward to for next week's episode. Next up, Sunny heads to the ring in full-on pander mode as she is dressed up as a Penn State cheerleader. Once again, she's acting as a guest ring announcer because apparently no one can think of an angle for a beautiful woman who can cut a good promo. It's downright sad to see that skill set go to waste. Not quite as sad as what Sunny is doing in the present day, but still pretty sad. Next up, Los Periquas members Savio Vega and Jesus Castillo, accompanied by Miguel Perez and Jose Estrada, versus WWF light heavyweight champion Taka Michinoku and Scott Taylor. Finally, the Kai and Tai Too Cool mashup we never knew we wanted. At this point, Jerry Lawler perves out over Sonny and then utters this incredibly creepy phrase. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm not embarrassed to be with younger women, except when I drop them off at school. Well, I ain't going there. I'm not embarrassed to be with younger women, except when I drop them off at school. That's a really funny joke coming from a guy who was accused of raping and sodomizing a 14-year-old girl five years prior. Now, in fairness, the girl did eventually say she made the whole thing up so it never actually went to court. But Jesus Christ, Jerry, have some perspective, man. That would be like O.J. Simpson walking around saying, I heard my wife Nicole was going as a Pez dispenser for Halloween. You don't make jokes about the crime once you get away with it. That's all I'm saying. Also, how oddly prescient that Lawler makes an underage sex joke on the very night that the show is live from Penn State University of all places, but that's a whole other story. Scotty is sporting a goatee and a curly mullet, while Savio and Jesus are rocking bulky high-waisted blue jeans, so I guess what I'm saying is we had very different definitions of what constituted an appropriate physical appearance in the year 1998. This was actually a surprisingly fun match, which included a really nice spot where Taka went for a moonsault from the turnbuckle to Savio on the floor. However, Savio caught him in midair and stiffly slammed him to the ground. Savio then crotched Scotty on the top rope, which allowed Jesus to hit him with a reverse superplex for the three count. After the match, all four Bariquas proceeded to continue beating on Taka and Scotty, so Owen Hart ran down to the ring and whacked Miguel on the chest with Triple H's crutch, causing them all to scatter. You may recall that last week, Los Bariquas jumped Owen because they were paid off by DX, so he was out for some revenge. Or maybe he just wanted to fuck with a wrestler named Jesus. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Up next, Michael Cole is in the ring to interview Degeneration X because it seems like they're contractually obligated to make at least one appearance per hour. Shawn Michaels reminds us that Kane and Paul Bear have parted ways, so he wants to formally welcome Kane as the newest member of DX. The lights go out, but instead of Kane appearing, we get The Undertaker's music, and he emerges from backstage. He steps into the ring and says he would appreciate it if Sean would leave his family out of their feud. He tells HBK to worry about himself and his title because he's going to punch a six-inch hole in his forehead this Sunday at the Royal Rumble. Taker then grabs HBK by the throat, and for you Botchamania enthusiasts, you will certainly recognize this as the clip from the Everyone Talks Too Much segment. China attempts to sneak up on Taker, but he picks her up for a choke slam. However, before he can slam her, Triple H hits Taker with his crutch, enabling China to escape. Taker turns his attention to Hunter, which allows HBK to sneak in and hit the dead man with a super kick. Sean then beats him with the crutch until it breaks, and Triple H joins in on the beatdown. HBK gets on top of Taker and starts punching him, but now the lights go out once again, and this time it actually is Kane. JR and Lawler play the role of Bobby Heenan by asking. And it turns out that Kane is actually siding with 
The Undertaker as he throws Sean to the ground and no-sells a crutch shot from Hunter, causing DX to flee. Kane follows them down the aisle, but then stops at the top of the ramp to look back at Taker. Kane then does Undertaker's signature Tim Tebow pose, and Taker reciprocates as Kane's pyro explodes over the four turnbuckles. JR screams out, what a moment, and I have to agree this was a pretty cool spot, where we got the first real indication that the Brothers of Destruction were on the same side. In addition to that, it's also historically noteworthy because this segment will mark the final time we will see a fully healthy Shawn Michaels on WWF television for more than four years. What happens to him at the Rumble? More on that next week. Back from break, and we see many wrestlers already in the ring preparing for the Royal Rumble number drawings, which will of course be chosen by the Royal Rumble number tumbler. However, it devolves into an all-out brawl when Ken Shamrock gets to the ring and goes after Mark Henry as payback for his swerve from earlier tonight. Eventually, referees and WWF officials manage to separate the wrestlers, and we then get an entrance from the honky-tonk man of all people, who will apparently also be in the match. Cactus Jack is out next, followed by the man of the hour himself, Stone Cold Steve Austin. His music plays and the wrestlers are looking for him by the stage, but instead Austin goes through the crowd and sneaks in behind them, knocks over the tumbler, hits Phineas Godwin with a stunner, and rolls out of the ring. For those scoring at home, tonight alone Phineas has taken the losing pinfall in a tag match, gotten assaulted backstage, and taken a stunner in the main event segment. I don't know who he pissed off, but I'm guessing it probably has something to do with the farmer's daughter. Once again, a huge brawl breaks out, but Austin leaves the ringside area unscathed, flipping them all off along the way. However, before he can leave the arena, The Rock, D'Lo Brown, and Savio Vega emerge from backstage and start beating on him at the top of the ramp. Austin crawls backstage as Rock, D'Lo, and Savio give chase. They disappear for a bit, but then Austin's entrance theme plays for some reason, and all four men re-emerge from backstage, with Austin still getting beaten down by them. I feel like they probably weren't supposed to play his music there, but oh well. We go off the with the Austin ass-kicking continuing on the ramp and the whole roster brawling in the ring as is customary for the go-home Raw before the Royal Rumble. The pre-Rumble brawl on Raw is almost as much of a Rumble tradition as Kane being eliminated from it every single year. And now, since this podcast's initials are RAP, let's go to the wrap-up with the newly created Wrap-Up Rap Mashup. Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The hippity hoppers love the wrestlings. For the ratings recap, once again, Nitro emerges victorious, winning by a wider margin than last week, 4.6 to 3.4. Here is what you could have been watching on Nitro instead. Goldberg defeated Jerry Flynn, who is not to be confused with the similarly named Jerry Lynn. Marty Jannetty defeated Black Cat. I had to make sure that was not a typo when it was in fact a legitimate match which occurred. But yes, Marty Jannetty was actually in WCW, and he did face a grown man who is named after a feline. Chris Benoit, still not familiar with him, defeated Dean Malenko. Booker T defeated Perry Saturn to retain his world television title. Lex Luger defeated Hugh Morris. Steve Mongo McMichael defeated Chris Jericho. That one's just sad. Juventud Guerrero defeated Rey Mysterio to retain the WCW World Cruiserweight title. And the Outsiders defeated the Steiner Brothers to win their fourth WCW World Tag Team titles. Once again, sounds like a pretty solid card, which would have made for a much more fun watch than tonight's episode of Raw. And to recap Raw itself, well... 
the show pretty much sucked. From a wrestling perspective, it was god-awful. Four straight matches ending via disqualification or no contest, and none of the seven matches on the card went longer than four and a half minutes. Of course, this is the Attitude Era, so you have to judge the whole show, not just the in-ring product. Unfortunately, aside from the Undertaker-Kane DX segment, there was really nothing else that was all that great. After two weeks of Austin beating people up backstage and giving them stunners, it's starting to get a bit stale, which I never thought I would say about Austin a few weeks into this podcast. Thankfully, we know that better days are coming for Stone Cold. If you must watch anything from this episode, check out Kane saving The Undertaker, the very first People's Elbow, and maybe Mark Henry's heel turn since it marks a turning point for him where he finally starts to become something more than the bland, smiley babyface. If you want a bit of positivity from me, I will just note that next week's episode of the podcast will cover the January 19th, 1998 episode of Raw, which features the aforementioned appearance by Mike Tyson. If you're a longtime wrestling fan, I assume you already know what happens there, but if not, get ready for one of the most famous moments in WWE history. As always, thanks for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to review us on iTunes or drop us a line at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com. I will catch you all next week, but first, I will leave you with another instance of Jerry Lawler being a creepy pervert, this time with a clip from when Terry Runnels won the hardcore title backstage and then lost it seconds later to Stevie Richards, who exposed a little bit too much of her lady business when he rolled her up for the pinfall. See you next time. Yes! <laughs>